Welcome to Then and Now, brought to you by the UCLA Luskin Center for History and Policy. We are dedicated to studying change in order to make change, linking knowledge of the past to the quest for a better future. Every week, we interview thought leaders, historians, researchers, and policymakers about what happened then and what that means for us now. Welcome to Then and Now, a new podcast sponsored by the Luskin Center for History and Policy at UCLA. I'm David Myers. I teach in the Department of History at UCLA and direct the Luskin Center. The goal of the center and the podcast is to bring the past into conversation with the present, and in doing so, to understand how we got where we are so that we can imagine alternative and better futures. We inaugurated Then and Now a month or so ago with a conversation featuring former LA County Supervisor Xavier Slavsky on the past and present of tensions between the Board of Supervisors and the Sheriff's Department. The podcast caught the attention of Sheriff Alex Villanueva, who then came on Then and Now to offer his version of the role of the Sheriff, his tenure, and the relationship between the Sheriff's Department and the Supervisors. And now to complete our trilogy in the mini-series of Supervisors and Sheriffs, We've invited two distinguished observers of local affairs, Connie Rice and Professor Raphael Sonnenschein, to share their understanding of county government, past problems, and the current dust-up between the sheriff and the supervisors. Connie Rice is a prominent civil rights activist and lawyer who is renowned for her unconventional approaches to tackling problems of inequity and exclusion, racial injustice, and police misconduct, among other causes. She's one of the most knowledgeable people around on the best practices of law enforcement organizations, especially in Southern California. Welcome to you, Connie. Thank you. And Rafe Sonnenschein is the executive director of the Pat Brown Institute for Public Affairs at Cal State Los Angeles. He's authored three books on LA politics and government. He also served as executive director of the Los Angeles Charter Reform Commission, and thus is uniquely able to combine real-life practical experience and academic expertise in addressing issues of local concern. Welcome to you, Rafe. Thanks for having me. So we've had two very divergent accounts of the past and present of county government and the relationship between the Board of Supervisors and the Sheriff, one by Xavier Slavsky and the other by Sheriff Villanueva. And we'd like you, Connie and Rafe, to help us understand things a bit better. Now, in the first part of our conversation, um, which will focus on the then and the then and now uh, pairing. Um, I wonder if you could share with us how you see the history of the relationship between supervisors and sheriff. How have they gotten along? Um, And I'll just say a word of uh, background, because on one hand, the sheriff's position is an elected one that is mandated in the state constitution. So there's some significant measure of autonomy built into it. On the other hand, the Board of Supervisors provides the Sheriff's Department with its budget, and the supervisors are financially liable for acts of misconduct litigated against the Sheriff's Department. So what has the past of the relationship looked like? Uh, Maybe we'll start with you, Rafe. Well, it's been an up and down relationship really for, for many, many decades because each body has its own strange qualities. You have uh, five supervisors with no elected executive, which is not the world's greatest way to design a legislative slash executive body. 
and you have this sheriff, the roots of an office that goes back to the ninth century in England. Um, it's such an anomaly in local government. So they fought over the budget. They fought over a lot of things, but in many cases, until recent decades, they sort of just stayed in their own territory as well because the county supervisors had plenty to do. And it was rather costly to get into arguments with the sheriff all the time. I think some of the roots of the things we see today are really in modern times, really the second half of the 20th century, uh, when uh, local government was becoming modernized itself and, and much more assertive. So uh, it's just been a strange relationship, but many times it's been no relationship. What about the degree of oversight or lack thereof? of both the supervisors and the sheriff. Um, it seems that they are uniquely immune to oversight that one would expect of, and we do expect, of government at local, state, and national levels. Well, I spent a lot of time looking at county government when I wasn't looking at city government. And what I found is that a lot of the currents of reform and improvement that drove the improvements of urban government just bypassed county government. And one of those was trying to find effective oversight. It's really not clear who oversees the county supervisors except the voters, uh, which is rarely considered in American government a particularly useful place to limit oversight. And then within that, you have the sheriff for whom there's even less oversight than for the county board of supervisors. So uh, it's, it's two bodies where there's been probably more improvement on the Board of Supervisors side in terms of accountability and visibility than the sheriff's side. Sheriffs have always been big at having visibility, but not very big at having oversight. By the way, if you go around the whole country, this question of oversight for sheriffs is not just a California problem. It's not just a Los Angeles problem. It's inherent in an office that never grew up, that basically uh, has in the American context, in the frontier Wild West and the Old South, uh, the sheriff was the dominant force in local government, and some of that carried over into the West. The anomaly of having the sheriff in the Constitution, which many people think is not a very good idea, has been extended to argue that you can't tell the sheriff anything, which I've looked at the Constitution many times. It doesn't say that at all, but what it does imply is that because the sheriff's in the Constitution, you can't tell the sheriff anything. That's not quite accurate, I would say. But I'd say that what's productive of what's going on now is that there's been more of a discussion that happened in urban government 40, 50 years ago in Los Angeles, which is looking for actual mechanisms of oversight. And I think that's a very heartening development. And really, for the first time, the winds of change are not bypassing county law enforcement the way they have so much attention focused on the LAPD and local police departments and so little on oversight of the sheriff. That's really changing. And that's creating, as you'll see later in our conversation, a lot of anger and annoyance among the players. Mm. So fascinating, this differential um, uh, effect uh, at the city and county level where transparency and accountability were so essential. You were very much involved in the Charter Reform uh, Commission and yet, for whatever reason, whatever uh, concatenation of historical reasons, county governments largely escaped this uh, movement of, of uh, reform and calls for scrutiny and accountability and transparency. And as, a, as egregious as the sheriff issues are, 
even in Los Angeles, the County Board of Supervisors has never been seen as as transparent as the LA City Council mm-hmm. in, in terms of public access and public comment and things like that and open meeting laws and things like that. So even there, you see the difference. But the largest difference is between the oversight of the police chief and the oversight of the sheriff. Because the sheriff has no report, no direct report to the to the county supervisor. Correct. Although that in time, I think, is going to evolve um, and, and change. Okay, thank you. Um, Connie, I'm wondering how you see the nature of the relationship from your perspective. Well, I, I think my eye on this began in the late 80s, and it was with Sheriff Block and the then supervisors. And it seemed to me that there... There, there was a sort of separate, mutually assured destruction, <laughs> a kind of quiet threat uh, that would never be realized. Whenever I talk to individual supervisors about some of the more outrageous litigation that we had to bring against the sheriff's department, uh, we brought, uh, we organized this, the 40 lawyers who brought the Thomas litigation uh, in federal court against the Vikings, uh, uh, a, a gang control unit that had tattoos and was an outlaw unit. But it really did reflect uh, the kind of uh, shock and awe uh, rubber room policing in those days. And it was, it was widespread enough and, and uh, virulent enough for us to be able to get a federal injunction that enjoined the entire sheriff's department. So the, 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 the county supervisors who were appalled by the conditions that we are lawsuits unearthed, they basically quietly behind the scenes in their offices and discussions would say, well, you know, the only, the only hammer we have is, is to withhold his budget, but they would call me soft on crime. So even that, that, that limited threat of we'll, we'll take the money out of your budget for these uh, settlements and, and costs of litigation, it, would nev- it was never going to happen because uh, it, the, the sheriffs were, like other law enforcement, organized enough to be an electoral threat. It's, I, I agree with, with Rafe's analysis of the dynamics uh, 100%. Um, I, I, the county is almost too big to understand. And I'll never forget one of the PhDs I interviewed when I was trying to figure out why it always felt like uh, when, when I was grappling with understanding the dysfunction in the county, it always felt like you were grasping smoke. You could never figure out where the data was. You couldn't figure out who knew what inside those 10 mile deep silos of those departments. Uh, the amounts of money were staggering compared to the cities. And the PhD I interviewed, she said, Connie, I've been dealing with the county for 30 years. Just remember, the county is Oz without the wizard. <laughs> and where does the sheriff fit in? Whom does he get to play? Oh, gosh. Uh, the Wicked Witch of the East? I don't know. <laughs> Rafe, which role? <laughs> I can't cast for that one. It's a great analogy, the lack of a county executive who could theoretically be like a wizard. But yeah, I think your analysis of it is right. And the sheriff is just one is one of the players, but car- the sheriffs carry themselves the way sheriffs around the country have tended to carry themselves, as if they are entities unto themselves. But when we talk about that in more detail, we'll find that it's really not quite true. They've just managed to convince 
the local people that they work for the state and the state people that they work for the local people. And as a result, they've built this lovely little spot where there's always somebody else who they actually maybe are accountable to in addition to the voters, but it's not quite true. That's really brilliant. That's a brilliant analysis. I, it makes me think that also within the sheriff's department, uh, uh, that over the years, it always struck me that there was no control. If you went out to Antelope Valley, they had set deputies out there, had set, set up fiefdoms that were completely unresponsive to the headquarters uh, near downtown uh, or, or Monterey Park. Um, and uh, that was also the case with the Vikings. They were untouchable in a lot of ways. Um, and, and, and untouchable in a different way that Metropolitan Division and LAPD uh, was untouchable. And, and it, um, there was an impunity, a level of impunity with the sheriffs. For example, um, I, I helped a case, uh, again, it was, it was a discrimination against Section 8 folks from L.A. trying to move up to Lancaster in that area, Rosamond, Lancaster in that area. And the sheriff's deputies up there saw themselves as the enforcers of an openly racist policy that had been announced at a city council meeting that we were not having black people come up with their Section 8. The deputy sheriffs uh, were on record in deposition saying that job is to enforce that kind of law. We know that it's against federal law but we're here to serve the mayor of this particular city. And Sheriff Baca couldn't make them heal. Uh, so it, it took a federal court, uh, just as it took a federal court to make LAPD heal. So how does that culture of impunity, Connie, compare to what one would find at, uh, in LAPD, for example, in the Gates era, in terms of rogue bands and a kind of culture of lawlessness and autonomy accorded to uh, the most violent. How would you compare the two, the Sheriff's Department and LAPD? There are variations on a theme, and Rafe, I don't know with, whether you would agree with this. I, I, LAPD was more regimented and had more internal control over the, the lawlessness that they condoned. Um, I always felt that the Sheriff, either Block or, or, or Baca, neither was in control of the organization, and they really didn't know what was going on. Gates got surprised occasionally, but it wasn't the norm. Um, I, and they, they both acted with a culture of impunity as most law enforcement does um, or, or has in the past. I mean, LAPD has evolved way beyond where the sheriffs are. The sheriffs haven't even begun to even ask the right questions and don't think they need to. Um, this is not your grandfather's LAPD. It is your grandfather's sheriff's department. Mm -hmm. I'm just wondering if the original sin that allows for this culture is the lack of oversight that we began talking about. I mean, does it really issue from uh, that huge chunk of autonomy uh, seemingly accorded to the sheriff and then uh, that ethos of, uh, of unaccountability just trickles down? Rafe, is that possible? I think, I think structure has something to do with this. And, and if, I, if you think about where the sheriffs patrol, they patrol the unincorporated territory of L.A. County, which is extensive, where there really is no local government. They are the local government. And, you know, roughly half of the independent cities of L.A. County contract with the sheriffs uh, to provide services for them. But in no case do they have a city that's theirs the way the LAPD 
patrols the city of Los Angeles and has an identity with that city. And I have to say that the LAPD has come a really long way in terms of accountability and behavior. It's literally, it's unrecognizable in many ways, even though there's still problems from the kind of unaccountable department until 1992 and, and beyond. In San Francisco, there is a sheriff and there is a police chief, but we don't have a lot of these problems because they are in the same territory because the county and city of, Los, of San Francisco are one. It's the only one of the 58 counties. In fact, the sheriff doesn't even patrol in San Francisco. It's the only one of the 58 counties. And when you look across the country where sheriffs coincide with a large city, it's a little bit different. Um, when they don't have whole vast territories without kind of organized forces to push back on them. And I think the county, I actually think the sheriffs have suffered from that in a certain sense. And, and what Connie's saying about the lack of control also has to do with the lack of span of control about where, what they're, they become the police chief of a small city in L.A. County. And then they become the government in East L.A., unincorporated territory because the supervisors are the government of that but but it's hard to supervise an entire unincorporated territory so the structure is all haywire and i think it reduces the identification with a local jurisdiction and sometimes the county sheriffs become an entrepreneurial organization you know looking for customers of uh, as i recall during the charter reform one of the things that most alarmed me was in uh we were in the middle of trying to keep the San Fernando Valley from seceding, and Chief Baca, on his own, not through the supervisors, made an offer, essentially, to the valley that said, if, if you folks take off from the city, we, have a, we offer a nice bargain package um, of law enforcement. And I thought to myself, I may be a political scientist and may be missing something, but this is a little bit odd. We've got competition. We've got business competition in local government. So... But I think that actually leads to some of what Connie's describing, which is a fracturing of what is the area to be patrolled and what's your connection to that area. And for all of its, of its terrible historic problems, the LAPD always was LA's law enforcement, LA City's law enforcement. And for better or worse, they had to either bully the elected officials or eventually get held accountable by the elected officials, but they knew that was their that was their story. I, I agree with that. There was at least a battle to be held in the city. You had you had a police commission, even even though it was a booster club in a lot of the history of LAPD. When the Christopher Commission finally, the blue ribbon elites of the city broke with LAPD, that began the era of reform, and it's still going on. And um I, I, I'm kind of stunned at, at how far the reform has gone inside LAPD. It's not about structural or fiscal or other kinds of reform. Uh, it's, it, it's also mindset and culture. There, there is a different attitude at the top of LAPD. I'm not going to say it's reached the graveyard shift um, in Watts, but um, it's pretty astounding. The sheriffs, on the other hand, you're seeing a repeat of the very problems we sued about. And the, the newest sheriff is condoning 
the use of those tattoos with, that, that mark a subculture of, of gangster cop behavior and cross, you know, crossbones and skulls like we did with the uh, Rampart scandal, um, that is known in police culture as a sign that you have subcultures in your police department that are not hewing to constitutional standards and that are um, acting more like gangs. And the current sheriff basically said, no, it's just identity. I bet there was a moment um, when it seemed as if uh, that culture of impunity and misconduct was going to be called a task. And that was when uh, a Blue Blue Ribbon Commission was created, the Citizens Commission on Jail Violence, which issued a report in 2012. Um, Why didn't that have the same effect on the sheriff's department that similar processes did on LAPD? Well, the processes for LAPD didn't really begin to get teeth until you had a federal court intervene. The consent decree is what began the real implementation of the Christopher Commission Report. The Christopher Commission Report came out and LAPD took 100 copies up to the academy and had a bonfire. They basically said, we're not doing this. Um, But after the Rampart scandal and Judge Feast took over, who, by the way, was counsel to the Christopher Commission, one of the 80 lawyers who who helped write the Christopher Commission report. Once that federal judge and Chief Bratton took over and you had a very deeply skilled police commission membership that was determined uh, to carry out the mission of, you know what, you don't get to say no this time. We're doing this and we're doing it now. Once those three forces lined up, LAPD reform started to happen and it never stopped. Uh, There's nothing parallel to that um, at the county level. Um, the, the, the current oversight commission was completely dismissed. They recently got, I believe, subpoena power, which will change the dynamics substantially. I haven't had a chance to evaluate the depth of the fluency of the members of that commission in, in police culture, police reform, and what it actually takes to change a large law enforcement organization. But at least now they can demand information and, and they have a shot at getting it. And Rafe, I'm wondering how that uh, commission looked to you and did it seem like uh, a possible new day for the sheriff's department um, that never came? Well, having spent most of my career looking at L.A. city government uh, and what Connie is really saying here is that the city already had the structures that it needed in many cases to hold the police chief and the department accountable. It just didn't use them. To give credit to the county, the county is creating these structures on the fly that never existed before and trying to make them work. So when they created the Citizens Commission, the supervisors knew pretty well it was not going to have a lot of teeth at the start. The idea was get, get a structure in place to go along with the Inspector General who was created in 2014. That report uh, of the Jail Commission had a very big impact. It really did. It probably drew the feds in to some degree because they started getting very interested in this. And one argument the sheriffs in the country have never been able to make it, well, some do, but don't get away with it, is that they can't don't even have to respond to the federal government. When the DOJ shows up in town, they usually have to respond. Um, but they, they took that commission as the best they could get in order to get a structure in place. And then it took until this year this month for the voters by 72% to give that commission subpoena authority. They're still trying to bolster the inspector general, but I give credit to the county 
that a couple of things have been put in place. Uh, now, the city didn't get the inspector general till 1995, three years after the Christopher Commission, but that was a big deal. It's only been six years since they've had one structure, and then 2016 was the, was the Citizens Commission. They're going the right way, which is you can't expect people to hold people accountable. People have to hold people accountable through institutions. You have to create organized forms of accountability. And again, as Connie said, you know, for I don't know how many decades, L.A. had the forms, but not the reality. The county's trying to do the forms and the reality at the same time. And it's sloppy. And it's and we're in the middle of it now. We can't say whether it's a success or failure. We don't know how the sheriff will ultimately react uh, to subpoenas. We don't know yet. May end up in court. But something's happening. Something is happening. And a structure is being has been established. Um, and in the meantime, political realities intervene. So in 2018, uh, we had the reformist candidacy of Alex Villanueva, uh, who ran against incumbent Jim McDonald. Um, what did that candidacy look to you at the time like, Rafe? <laughs> um, in some ways, it looked to me like a breath of fresh air um, as a candidacy, because actually, uh, both McDonald and um, Villanueva came in breaking the old pattern of people being sheriffs forever, 20, 24 years, and then passing it on to their selected person. Baca was the first person to really break that, but it, it, it required the death during the candidate campaign of the incumbent, Sherman Block, um, for him to get that position. So both of them were going to be a change. Uh, because Sheriff McDonald had been kind of waffling on the question of how to deal with the immigration policies coming out of the Trump administration, um, Villanueva was able to gather a lot of support in the progressive community, had the support of the Democratic Party. He had strong Latino support. Um, what he was saying about reform was actually not heard by a lot of voters correctly which is he was talking about the discipline system being broken. And it actually, nobody actually took that seriously during the campaign. Uh, they might have been a little bit less surprised by some of his early actions if they had actually listened that what he was saying was that maybe there was too much discipline of sheriff deputies. And he had very strong support from the sheriff's deputies organization. So I was thinking during the campaign how is he going to balance liberal progressive expectations and some of the other expectations of his performance? Uh, but that's, at the time, it was a, a phenomenal upset. Uh, McDonald had all the organized political establishment behind him. Didn't run, run much of a campaign, uh, which, you know, I'm sure he regretted later on. Uh, and, villain, I mean, upsets are always exciting in L.A. county government. They happen so rarely. Connie, how did it look to you, the Villanueva um, candidacy? And what, what's your interim assessment at this point? I attribute his upset to a tinge of Trump derangement uh, syndrome. I think the, I think the, the understandable revulsion against ICE operating like slave catchers and uh, carrying on the way they have 
uh, all it took was a few pictures of Sheriff McDonald smiling and shaking hands with Donald Trump. And as soon as I saw the, the as soon as I saw the brochures from the Villanueva uh, campaign, I thought, oh my gosh, this can happen, uh, because I knew I knew the 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 tsunami of revulsion against ICE, uh, which I share. And um, so I, I I wasn't a surprise. I I didn't know what to expect, but knowing where he had been assigned in his career and uh, how he had not promoted, it made me wonder what we were gonna see. And, and um, disappointment doesn't begin to describe uh, what we've seen. Uh, there's actually, I, his first actions to me were a reversal of what few uh, corrections had been made to uh, outlaw behavior by deputies, uh, stalking of women by deputies, uh, just really not 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 just technical violations of uh, minor regulations in the sheriff's department or behavior or uniform violations or, or you know they didn't have their stars and bars on right. We're talking about reinstating people who who had been found by by bodies that are very reluctant to to, to find anything wrong with what law enforcement does. Uh, uh, sheriff behavior that included stripping minors and and abusively interrogating them in the nude. Um, we're talking about uh, the Mandoyan reinstatement. He's on videotape, breaking in through a woman's uh, window to to uh, intimidate and, and terrorize an ex-girlfriend. Uh, there are people in prison for that kind of stalking behavior, and, and this is whom uh, the new sheriff decided to reinstate. So the, the women's rights community, of which I'm a member, a number of progressive leaders were extremely dismayed by his first actions, to say the least. Yeah, and on our podcast, um, the sheriff says that crime and jail violence are down and morale is up. I'm wondering um, whether that sounds right to you, Rafe. Uh, well, it's perfectly possible that morale is up among a number of the deputies. Um, you know, who strongly supported him and are getting pretty much the promise, which is that he would, he would have their backs, uh, you know, for better or for worse. And um, I don't think morale is very high now in the kind of reformist community, certainly. Uh, I don't know about whether the crime stats are really what his campaign was about. Um, I think the things with challenging the processes of civil service, uh, taking a number of actions to say that the county council has nothing to say about anything that he does. I think that one of the most nerve-wracking ones was his attempt to file criminal charges against the uh, inspector general. That's what really moved me to think that this was a very serious problem. At the same time, from watching this over so many decades in so many different settings, it's also the actions of an office that feels its autonomy isn't what it used to be. It's, it's, it seems to be assertive, but also defensive in a way that sheriffs never were in the past. Uh, sheriffs, you know, until very recent years would just sort of blow off everybody because uh, they always figured they could get away with it. But now we're in the middle of this grappling 
over accountability, it it seems more uh, more startling, but it also doesn't seem like ultimately a winning strategy, I guess is what I'm saying. I mean, in the old days, you could just say, well, look, you got a committee here, a committee there, and whatever this inspector general, I'm just going to refuse to do what they want and attack them in public and it'll be fine. It's not going to be fine. So it doesn't seem to me like, it seems like a strategy to carry out the parts of his campaign agenda that he really wanted to do and thought that were very important to him. Uh, his feeling that deputies who had been against whom charges had been made had been treated badly. That seems to be the core of his complaint in, in many ways. Um, in the long run, I just don't think you could make that work as a as a governing strategy, where there, even there are institutions like the county council and the civil service system and things like that that really make it hard to make that to make that fly. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Um, and what struck me in your interview with him, David, was the sort of conspiratorial. Uh, they're out to make me look bad. They're out to make my personal reputation. Uh, get damaged. They want to damage the sheriff's department. And as somebody who has sued most of the people he talked about, I, you know, I know them quite well. And um, I mean, to believe, to, to, to validate his eye on this series of events and the conclusion that, that he needs to be reined in and uh, quickly and that what he has been doing is out is beyond the pale. Um, you would have to believe that the courts, the inspector general, all five uh, supervisors, the oversight commission, uh, the civil service division, as well as all the civil rights attorneys who have sued and won class actions for sheriff's abuses, you'd have to believe that all of them and the LA Times reporters are all together in a large conspiracy to make him look bad. And I know that all those entities and institutions and individuals, they're mostly made up of very good people, um, but they couldn't get together to organize that kind of conspiracy on their best day. And so there was, there was a, an element of delusion and paranoia to, 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 to that interview that, that I hadn't really picked up before. Um, it, it, it was his, uh, his version of reality did not match the facts on the ground. And it does seem, if I can just pair your two comments, your last comments, that the constituency of greatest interest to him, the constituency to whom he feels he needs to answer, um, is not the public and not the supervisors and not the oversight officials that have been set in place in the wake of the uh, Blue Ribbon Commission, but um, his comrades in the ranks of the deputies. Um, it is for them that he seems to be... Um, most passionate and uh, and anxious to affect reforms. Um, I, I'm wondering, is, is that more or less how you see things, Rafe? Yeah, and that doesn't always have to be a bad thing. If I could just step outside of this for a second. You think of the commander of that Theodore Roosevelt who risked his career when political people were jeopardizing the lives, or maybe the West Point commandant might have something to say about calling the cadets back uh, for a commencement address. I mean, leaders are supposed to speak for 
the people who work under their command. And so in a sense, I don't have a problem with that. What I have a problem is that that should not include those whose misbehavior has been documented because that's the other part of being a commander. So this is what happened in LA in the old days with Gates, where Gates, again, at the moment where the department was seeing its autonomy eroded, you know, sort of pulled back to say, you know, I'm going to defend the officers no matter what. Well, I'm not even sure that was in the interest of the officers. It certainly wasn't in the interest of the best officers. Um, I'd say there's another constituency that all sheriffs in California can draw on, which is that the state government is very reluctant to use any of its authority to help provide oversight at the local level that the Constitution allows them to do. And sheriffs and their and the deputies are, are very powerful in Sacramento. There's a bill in Sacramento that died not too long ago that would have enhanced and guaranteed the authority of this commission to issue subpoenas. And I, I imagine this subpoena power will be in court. And courts might say, well, the state hasn't, it passed one body of the legislature and not the other. People don't realize that the Attorney General of California has the direct authority in the Constitution to basically supervise all sheriffs. So we don't hear that too much because Attorney Generals don't like to get mixed up in the politics of sheriffs who have a lot of sway in local government and a lot of sway in Sacramento. So it's a bigger battle than you might imagine because of the Constitution being involved, the states involved. That being said, I don't. I do think at a certain matter of time, you do paint yourself into a corner, as Connie said, which is it's it's you against everybody, unless what you feel is that um, sheriffs really are on their own and can and can win. Now, if he gets reelected, though, he still has the voters, and every sheriff that I've seen from Baca on, when you have said. To whom are you accountable? They say, well, it's very easy. Just don't don't elect me. It is interesting, though, that when the voters determined to put term limits on the sheriff, Chief Baca took them to court and won and argued that voters didn't have the power to provide the same term limits for the sheriff. But even so, most research on, on sheriffs and accountability says that elections are not a very good mechanism for holding them accountable. And that's why these structures are so important. So we have some structures, and yet what you're suggesting uh, is that some sort of external intervention, like from the Attorney General, or as Connie was suggesting, in the case of LABPD, a consent decree may be necessary to really shake things up. Uh, is that so? Um, can, can there be reform of the system from within? Uh... As Rafe just described, because the sheriff's power derives directly from the Constitution, the, 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 the controls the, that are put on by local entities are, are, are going to be fought. Uh, I, I just don't know what the outcome of those cases, cases would be. Once the feds, if we, if we get a Justice Department back, a functioning federal Justice Department back, that's always uh, an avenue of accountability and a threat of control. Uh, also the litigation, the big class actions, for example, a huge class action against uh, uh, county policies for strip searches of female prisoners. 
Um, it's a massive case, uh, just like our Thomas litigation was. So the, the civil rights litigation and other kinds of litigation, wrongful death litigation, um, uh, remains a check. But as in the old days with LAPD, litigation was the only check. So um, I'm, I'm hopeful that I think the frame of reference of the public has shifted. That as Rafe, as Rafe said, accountability isn't a strange idea anymore. It's an expectation. And um, you can't just say, no, we're not going to provide the data. A law enforcement would routinely say no. They would tell federal courts no. And um, that you see less of that now. So I think the trend is, as Rafe said, um, increased transparency and accountability. Now, Sheriff Villanueva is very good at using those words. But if you look at his actions, he's fighting every single request for data and is, is basically saying you're trying to make law enforcement look bad. You're coming at us with assumptions that law enforcement has done bad things. And it's not fair. The LA Times won't do good stories about us. It's, 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 it's a failure to, to reconcile yourself to the reality and the facts of your past abuses. And, and LAPD still has a problem with that. They, if you talk to young recruits, they do not know who Eula Love was. They do, they've never heard of Dalton Avenue. They've never heard of Operation Hammer. They don't teach that history. But at least LAPD has put in requirements at the top that are clearly showing the thinking And Rafe, I'm, I'm wondering what you make of the current dust up between the supervisors and the sheriff um, uh, when the sh supervisors decided to move the sheriff as head of emergency operations for the county. How, did that, how does that look to you? Who's right in that case? You know, I don't know who's right on this one. I think it was kind of unfortunate that this happened when it happened. Uh, I couldn't imagine worse timing for a dust up about who's in charge of, of emergency and, and no matter how you, 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 you lay that out, no one's going to understand one way or the other who's right and who's wrong in that. We're just too worried about the, the crisis that we're in. Uh, it also shows the lack of an elected executive at the county level makes a crisis, a, an argument like that almost impossible to pull off because you're watching Mayor Garcetti at 515 every night on TV so there's, you think, well, I guess there should be an, a visible executive who's in charge. Well, who on the county board of supervisors is going to be that person? So it, it just seems to me like not the ideal framing of what you're trying to get across. But I think they thought that it had to be done. I think they believed it had to be done. But I don't think anybody in the community is going to have a clear understanding that, that whereas if you say it's a battle over accountability and whether there's a subpoena and whether you can get information, that's something people can really can really grasp. What's what's interesting is that the county had a chance to have an executive, but as soon as they got someone who was willing to act as a real executive, they got rid of him. And um, it, it it strikes me that that there's a schizophrenia about this. I don't know, Rafe. What, what you, <laughs> they they don't seem to really want anybody to be an executive. Oh, well, I think we mean two different things there. What I mean is that the county should have an elected executive who's elected countywide. 
um, you're right. They have not really wanted to have an empowered CEO and the current board, you know, set it up so that the CEO is even less empowered than the previous one. But I've always thought that the county should have a county mayor. And that would change the whole debate about emergency services, because the argument would be the head of that should be the county mayor. But when you have five people, anyway, I, I think it's not the most imp important kind of governance issue going on between them and the sheriff, but it, it certainly came across as something that's a little hard for people to grasp. So Rafe, as we move towards conclusion, um, I'd like to ask you, in fact, to follow up on what would be um, a good set of suggestions for uh, the county government at this point. If, if electing a CEO or a mayor is, is one possibility, what would you like to see happen, especially with respect to the relations between the supervisors and the sheriff, and especially in terms of setting in place some measure of accountability for the sheriff? Well, I actually think we're at the end of the beginning, not the beginning of the end. That, the, that what has happened is a number of structures have been put in place, and I think the supervisors need to keep pushing and push effectively. And don't let the feeling about the personality of the sheriff become a distraction. I would keep the focus on governance and look at the state constitution, look at it more carefully. It doesn't say the sheriff does whatever the sheriff wants just because the sheriff is elected. Hire some good lawyers to win cases in court where the, where the judges may side or may not know what the Constitution really is, is leaning toward. Um, go to the voters when you need to. Change the county charter. Don't forget there's a charter. But keep the focus on accountability more than personality. And don't take the bait when it becomes a, a battle of personalities, but keep going because Tom Bradley was elected in 1973 with an agenda that included holding the department accountable. He was in office for 19 years. That's why I say when people say, is it working? It, it's really just starting. It really has just started. And Connie, what would you like to see? What's, what recommendations would you offer? As part of that journey, uh, and I, I agree with Rafe, they've just begun. I would like to see an audit of the sustainability of the contract, city contract structure. It's always struck me as a house of cards that isn't really sustainable. Um, they seek all the contracts with these cities to, and they keep expanding the empire, but they can't really cover everything. And there's a lot of triage and, and shuffling that goes around. Um, I, I'd really want to, you know, you look, at the, you look at the mandate of what the sheriff's department is supposed to do, and I'd like to get an analysis of whether they've exceeded that footprint to the point where it actually affects their core, their core functions. And the second thing is they need to go down the path that LAPD went down, which is reimagining their mission and what it means to be an officer. Uh, they haven't changed that mindset. Uh, not nearly, they haven't even begun that journey and LAPD is in its 15th year of it. So um, those are the two things I, I would suggest. And I suppose on that note, just as a final question to you, Connie, you've had tremendous experience studying, scrutinizing and litigating against law enforcement agencies. I'm wondering what does history teach you about what we might learn for the future? Well, litigation is a floor but no court can order 
an officer to look at a dark-skinned black child in Jordan Downs and think that I want to see that child succeed as opposed to I want to arrest him. So the, the culture, mindset, attitude, outlook work is the last, the last thing that you get to. And litigation can't do that. And so we have to help police reimagine their mission. And we have to support them in that transition to a more humane uh, service and protection and trust mission. You want trust policing, not warrior policing. And that's the journey we've been on with both LAPD and sheriffs. LAPD has gone down that road. The sheriffs need to figure out how to get on it. Great. Thank you. I'd like to take this opportunity now to thank Connie Rice and Ray Sonnenschein, two great civic leaders in Southern California, for this most illuminating conversation on Then and Now. Thank you so much, Connie. Thank you so much, Rafe. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. Until next time, this is David Myers wishing you a healthy and safe day. Thank you for joining us this week on Then and Now. Then and Now is brought to you by the UCLA Luskin Center for History and Policy, where we study change to make change. For more on our work, follow us on Twitter and Facebook at our handle, at Luskin History. Our show is produced by Maya Ferdman and David Myers, with original music by Daniel Reichman. Special thanks to the UCLA History Department for its support, and thanks to you for listening.